Django. higher fidelity it's the fifth episode if it was a finger it'd be a thumb if it was a beetle it'd be jimmy nickel i'm pete i'm evan i'm ross uh a lot has happened since our last cast our prior pod (laughs) higher fidelity is now on spotify Uh, for a hot minute it was on the new arrivals page on the podcast section and now it's going to spend a cold eternity at the bottom of searches for the elvis costello song and the nick hornby soundtrack uh, the second issue of Chrome Magnon came out last week with uh, the cover star Ross Farley. Uh, he declined to be interviewed. We declined to ask him. It also features an interview with Tony Hicks, uh, our Lord and Saviour, his mm. hotness, the Vox Vix and the 12 String Stunner. He's a <laughs> wrecking machine! Uh, and it also features a comic strip about a one dimensional character stuck in the first dimension, which is a joke that fell a bit flat. Oh. As, as did that. <laughs> uh, Zen Arcade have been very, very busy recently. We've been rehearsing a good bit. Uh, we had a rehearsal in the rugby club in Cavan a few Sundays ago, and uh, we were loading into the ballroom just as the ladies' team were finishing their post-defeat luncheon of Bappy Burgers soaked in the sauce of their own Dash League dreams <laughs> as uh, children ran around with pool cues and bags of Monster Munch and Gordon Darcy sat naked in an ice bath that I think he brought from home. Yeah, I was there and that's someone that more vividly than I could possibly have imagined. <laughs> exactly. Me and the rugby club go way too far back. <laughs> my time there uh, spanned my formative years and overlapped with my imperial phase where I ballooned to 13 stone at the age of 13. <laughs> To paraphrase a poem detested and reviled by veteran the Dyer's education system, 13 stone, a stone for every year. <laughs> Seamus Heaney, I wish oh, I could... I'm always in tears at the end of that poem. I wish I could forget you and your shit poems. <laughs> uh, but I played rugby for seven years. And in those seven years, we never won a match and never scored a single thing. And the year I left, they won the league. Now, I'm a team player. <laughs> and when the chips are down, and they've been down for seven years... You look around at your teammates who are looking back at you, haven't seen you just try to volley a rugby ball on your own touchline, <laughs> and then spill a Powerade on James Levy's phone on the way home, and you make the tough decision. My immediate retirement was that tough decision. <laughs> uh, I took one for the team by taking myself off the team. Your resignation. And then a few years later, the Stripes were asked to be part of an RTE one-take thing. Don't like those videos that were mm. all the ways then, where you go through the entire building and everyone does a little bit to cameras, it goes by, it has to yeah. be one take. Uh, we spent an entire afternoon on a rooftop garden with Brent Pope, a man who was kicked out of New Zealand for being too good at rugby. So he came to Ireland to sit in a chair and talk about it for forever. <laughs> he glided over. Now, I can say a lot about this man, but I cannot fault his impeccably smooth gait. <laughs> Butter. Yeah. Uh, he glided over and... <laughs> he glided over and asked if my... The bass I had with me that day, the Dan Lecter Longhorn, was a toy because it didn't seem real to him. <laughs> Is your career a toy, Brent? Because it doesn't seem real to me. I didn't say that. Uh, instead, I tried to impress him further by telling him my rugby stat, which he chuckled at and then countered viciously mm. with the fact that he was a roadie mm. for Herman's Hermits during a tour of New Zealand in the 80s. Tables turned Pope trying to impress us. He won the reprehensibly shit thing you did in the past, hands down. <laughs> it had no original members. Yeah. I can't top that. Good God. Not even a, not even a Peter Noon. No, it was Peter Noon. But like, oh, again, Peter Noon and no the No other guy. original members. Oh, yeah, Peter Noon and the Peter boys. Noon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, God. <laughs> Every day we stray further yeah. from his light. Yeah. Uh, Ross got his driver's license. I did, yeah. Uh, I passed the test when I shouldn't have passed. <laughs> Same. I was. I did a lesson just before it, and I was asked the road signs, and I got one out of nine that he asked me, and he said, you have to drive impeccably, because you'll get the questions wrong at the start. <laughs> and he said, you'll get so many faults before you start driving that you can't make a mistake after you leave the room. It's a great uh, pep talk. I, but I, yeah, exactly. But no, I went in there and I fucking smashed it. My driver instructor had no faith in me at all because I came out and said I passed, and he went, "Oh, really?" <laughs> <laughs> the day your license arrived as well was the day of your birthday. Of it was. It what was. You, what did we do on your birthday? We only dressed up um, in Back to Future cosplay and watched Blade Runner. How many girlfriends have we got? Uh, we're in the minus no. numbers now. <laughs> <this> point, <actually. laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, Blade Runner is an absolutely incredible film. So. The director's cut. We watched the director's cut. Oh yeah, we didn't, we didn't fuck him out. No, we're not normie bitches. We watched the director's cut. Yeah, I uh, mean it's not it's not the people's fault in 1982 that they, they, they weren't going to see the version that came out 25 years later. Exactly, exactly. Not their fault. They were too normie. 
But um, it, it, it's the most gorgeous looking film I think that's ever been made. And we had the discussion as well about how if you just put a, if you digitally imposed a cowl over Harrison Ford, it'd be a Batman film. It'd be the best Batman film. Yeah, I think Rutger Hauer as well could definitely have been a Joker. Oh, a, yeah. very, a very good physical Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, his performance is fucking brilliant. Harrison's a badass. Uh, everything about it, everything just rocks. We also Zenarcade did a recording day. Uh, we did out in the studio first with, studio session with uh, Damien Brennan uh, who's been an, an amazing ally of, of ours for the last few years and a great friend and all that he has the best <laughs> if ever there was somebody that defined the word ally I think it's fair oh, to say uh, yeah yeah no, we've been in the trenches with this <laughs> yeah. man in rare spots and he's always yeah. got us out of a hole yeah uh, he has an amazing collection of gear and has this fantastic studio that has a big studio floor with a control room that looks down over it and separate booths and amazing separation mm. and all that sort of stuff uh, and it was originally a swimming pool but I think he realised it's going to be really hard to record bands in a swimming pool yeah he really yeah. drum the same terrible underwater so I mean well Naked Butters Band would beg to disagree with you that video for True. If that love then what is exactly. if that's not a good drum sound then what is <laughs> uh, if that's not a great band then what is brilliant and I'm really enjoying the trajectory of the podcast so far we've put a lot of work into the jingles yeah. writing and, and recording them uh, we all do a lot of research for every episode mm. the structure the pacing the segments all that sort of stuff a lot of editing goes into it post work Mm. And the thing that got the biggest reaction of all of this was the Spider-Man 3 discussion in the third episode. <laughs> yeah. And there's more where that came from, you Raimi teeth sucklers. So hold on to your fucking headphones <laughs> and let's get webby. So in the first act of the film... Mm. This isn't Sonic Seconds yet? No, this is God. more... This is a, oh my God. Further, this is a pre-preamble. So in the first act of the film, Gwen Stacy uh, is saved by Spider-Man as she's falling out of a building during a photo shoot that she was modelling in. That old chestnut. She then uh, organises a civic reception for Spider-Man because oh, yeah. she's also a model who's a councilwoman <laughs> who can do this and is also in Peter's class. It's not clear what yeah. Gwen does. In she has more film. powers than Spider-Gwen does in her universe. And this woman just, I don't know, where just organises a civic reception for Spider-Man mm. like that, if it's easy to do. Mm. And is also has finds time to be shit in Dr. Connor's class and need Peter's help. <laughs> uh, so she organises a big civic reception. She's on a stage. There's a whole committee behind her. The stage is adorned in golden streamers. There's a big metal sign on top saying "Thank you, Spider-Man." There's an orchestra playing the Spider-Man theme song, and there's about four hundred people that all gathered in what I can make out is Central Park. Mm. She announces Spider-Man. He swings in, high-fiving the people as he goes, lands on the top of the stage, says "Shazam." Good God! That old Spider-Man catchphrase. That old chestnut. And that's the second time you said that old chestnut. <laughs> and he then repels down so that he is upside down, but still face to face with Gwen. Right. They're then implored to kiss. Uh, the crowd go go on go, go kiss kiss or kiss or kiss or kiss. Trademark upside down Spidey kiss, like the famous kiss from the upside down Spidey. Yeah. Kiss, <laughs> yeah. They kiss, the crowd goes nuts. Therein lies the crippling logical inconsistency. Mm. How does anyone know that that kiss happened? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the kiss in this film is just there. The kiss between Peter and Gwen is there to drive a wedge between Peter and MJ in this film to further their their mm. romantic troubles and all that stuff. But. That kiss happened in a dark alleyway just after Spider-Man saved MJ from a load of thugs who were attacking her, right? Mm. Only them two know about the kiss. The thugs didn't see it because they were too busy suffering from massive brain hemorrhages, internal bleeding, obliterated skulls and like fractured necks. Cause head, there is head, head trauma. Head trauma, square cubed. Yeah. These lads are not talking to anybody, <laughs> right? But let's say for argument's sake that they saw the kiss and told some people. How, over the course of, from what I can gather canonically, about two years in the mm. film's story... How did that case become so immortalised, cemented and ingrained in the public consciousness, so much so that the mere presence of Spider-Man upside down beside a woman demands that an entire congregation in Central Park demand mm. in unison mm. that they kiss. Mm. Now, I, what are we, there's not much we can do with that here, right? So, yeah. like, you know, do we, are we left to assume that Spider-Man 3 takes place in a universe where the first Spider-Man film came out? <laughs> right, it was a it was a big film, four hundred eighteen million dollars at the domestic box office alone. That would explain why everyone knows the kiss, yeah. right? But it does throw every single other frame of the film into a big, fat, smelly, upsetting, depressing bin of chaos. It does because yeah. it makes no sense. Maybe it maybe in the Spider Man Tobey Maguire universe there was a Spider Man film that came out based on true events there was a spin-off thing. but then what is the film I, about I, I though how did they, but how did they get around who what Spider-Man's alter ego is all that sort of stuff you know that's I mean? true makes no sense so Peter Parker might be feeling a bit fucking arrogant or might be feeling like he's um, the dogs lately but uh, what sort of judgement is it that he's willing to have a back, half of his face exposed in front of hundreds of people there could be a photographer could snap a photo before a lip on lip contact is made there could be a split second photo of yeah. there's fucking Tobey Maguire Peter Parker's mouth just turn that picture upside well, see, down this is the thing Shia LaBeouf put a fl- took, took a photo of a flag mm. a white flag that was fit and all it was was a flag 
and the and the, the sky behind it. Yeah. And it was a live stream. He said, find this flag. And people online, through watching the flight patterns of planes going above it, were able to find it in two hours. <laughs> wow. If the bottom half of your face was exposed and you were as high profile as Spider-Man, you would be found out so quickly. In like so a quickly. day. That aside, there's an, I have another theory. Mm. That kiss is referenced in Shrek 2. At the beginning, the opening montage. <laughs> it fucking is, and accidentally loved it. Yeah, yeah. soundtrack flawlessly by accidentally yeah. love. And so Shrek gets a rope tied around his ankle. He's pulled up into the air, dunked into a puddle of muck. His head is covered in muck. Fiona walks over, wipes the bottom half off, much like Emily lifting the mask off. Plants one on him. In this fucked up Raimi universe, is the upside down Spider Man kiss just known as the Shrek Two kiss? <laughs> is it a reference to Shrek? With the orchestra should have started playing accidentally love at that point. I'm not the bad guy. I'm just trying to fix problems from what is, as we've already yeah. covered, adjusted no, for inflation, yeah. the most expensive film yeah. of all time. You're not trying to be the Norman Osborn. Also, he swings into Central Park. Mm. Anyone who's ever played a Spider-Man game knows that that is ridiculous. <laughs> you have to do that stupid run, jump, web zip thing like a frube to get to wherever you want. Am I right, Ross? Yes, there's no buildings in Central Park. It's a park. No. It's only trees. Uh, there's also an extra. There's a character in that scene... It blows my mind every time I see it. Oh, I, she, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she sat on the stage behind Gwen. Yeah. Clearly, obviously, part of the committee, right? Yeah. And when Gwen says, Spider-Man, this extra is on her feet, grabbing her head, swinging <laughs> it in ecstatic disbelief that yeah. Spider-Man's going to be there. Despite the fact that she's clearly part of the like, organisation of this event, yeah. she's on a stage that says, thank you, Spider-Man, in front of 400 people dressed in Spider-Man She's like a, a city official or whatever. Who would have fucking thought Spider-Man was going to be there? And she reacts slightly before she he, she announces it. Yeah, it's terrible acting. <laughs> yeah. She shouldn't have got her lunch that day. She's a fucking hack. And there's, there's my Spider-Man 3 take from this episode. Apart from, like, Ripping the absolute space-time continuum apart with reality, the line between reality and fiction in a in a universe that isn't this one becoming blurred. Uh, yes, Spidey being a bit of a being a bit of a reckless noob. Now the thing is, I've <laughs> since watched Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, and Army of Darkness, and I want Bruce Campbell to kiss me on the lips as Sam Raimi <laughs> massages my haunches. <laughs> I do. And with that, let's start the show. Sonic Seconds where we just pull two or three seconds out of a song that we think sounds really cool <laughs> <laughs> damn straight uh, my uh, for my Sonic Second uh, comes from very familiar territory to the people in this room don't say the move oh Christ no okay <laughs> <laughs> no to us this is, this is we're... I've met two people in the last few days who said you talk about the move and the who way too much <laughs> I said no we don't talk about them enough no we absolutely don't you don't want who and move chat why the hell are you here? Who um, move? Yeah. Move. It makes me nervous. My song second uh, comes from uh, the Boomtown Rats. Um, so this actually comes from really familiar territory to all of us. This comes from like right in the deep in our lines of this right, is internal plum this, stuff. This, this is this is like core core of plum. This, <laughs> this, 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 this is the pit of the plum. These are the pips. <laughs> <laughs> Two plums have pips. Peaches. Plums have stones, I think. <laughs> the stones on this lad. But, uh, <laughs> the pips on you. <laughs> this is really, um, really deep in the stone pip plum pit. Uh, blind date. Oh. Of tonic for the troops. Yes. All the pop pickers at home. This is. Uh, you haven't said pop pickers since the first episode, is it? Have I not? No. Oh, well, I, Jesus! I vowed silently in my head and didn't tell anybody that I would say it all the time. But uh, there you go, pop pickers. It's only the second time I've called you that. Um, this album has soundtracked huge chunks of our uh, adolescence the, the people in this on this podcast um, a lot of deep meaningful <laughs> times the deep meaningful the time. deep uh, times the worst rat album mm. a lot of fun a lot of fun memories had to this album can you have a fun memory you can't have a fun memory but they I can. have one yeah I have several <laughs> do you have any fun memories Ross? Um, you know I uh, yeah, just when I said fond memories had, I just this thought is, this I, is I thought I sounded foreboding like an, all over again. Yeah, it is, it is. I thought I sounded like an evil idiot when I said that for the first time. So, uh, Blind Date the, the has a has a kick ass uh, drum intro. Am I near where you thought? That's not the bit I was gonna think of. No, oh, okay. Because there's several there, there's several aspects of this track and several Sonics, uh, uh, Sonic seconds. Al- yeah, yeah. <laughs> several <laughs> several Sonic elements across this whole album that are very much play plum worthy. But uh, I've gone for the flam as the opening chord. I think it's I think there's a big big A power chord hit. Okay. 
and uh, there's a big flam on the toms and it sounds a little bit like this. Oh yeah, okay. That's really, really nice. But by the end of the intro, they have a, I think they've started double tracking the toms because the flam is so boom. Mm. In a in a, a as I say plumtastic. I thought you were just going to go for the the shout of blind date. That would be my sonic second. That. That's a brilliant, yeah, fantastic, yeah. absolutely. Boomtown Rats are horrendously overlooked band to the point where I get annoyed at the lack of representation of Boomtown Rats songs in stuff now. Again, it's pathetic. They were the, the like them and Blondie should be the oh they bridged new wave and punk. Oh god, no yeah. one ever says that. Yeah, and they yeah. are a fantastically creative band. Should be put in the league of talking heads, Roxy Music, all that stuff, and they never are. Best band coming out of Dublin, in my view. Yeah, easily, uh, I think so. Yeah, De- definitely most like challenging and creative. And all that, yeah, because obviously yeah. you have the Paul Cleary Dublin thing as well. But Rats who got on the world stage or whatever. Oh, absolutely! Uh, no, uh, I know. Uh, I, I think the Rats are better than fucking Blades, and I love the Blades with all my heart and soul. <laughs> uh, heart and soul. Mama don't care. Papa don't mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> They're not the best band in Dublin. No, that's my Sonic Second. Me, me next. My Sonic Seconds from the year of my birth, and you two will. Oh, know of course, it. I know that year. Yeah. You, t- you two will know it very well because you are peep show watchers. Oh, of course. Oh, are of we course. in danger of hearing some of in danger? <laughs> oh, Jesus! And it's the it's the end where we we tr- we've tried to do this plenty of times. Oh, and yeah. we never can. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Why do you like it? I just I I think it's brilliant. I don't have the same way with words as you guys have, so I'm just I'm just gonna say I like it. <laughs> it sounds. Good. Uh, my Sonic Seconds, again, for the third time in a row, is a song in a film. Nice. But the song uh, is from, it, the bit is from Ken Russell's adaptation of Tommy by The Who. Hells yeah. You happy? H to the E to the L L S Y E A H. Yep. It's Sally Simpson. Yeah. And at this point in the film, uh, Tommy, who is deaf and blind, he went to the mirror, is now not deaf and blind anymore, and is now the new messiah and is preaching to the converted in a, in a hall where he's being preceded by a load of sort of variety acts and that absolutely uh, Sally Simpson a young girl goes along to see Tommy play and she wants to touch him the, there's, a, there's a, a second then where Oliver Reed yeah never has a man so resembled the liquid he loved to consume <laughs> he looks like a pint he does I'm just going to play it here one of the faithful came on stage and shouted here we go <laughs> It's the arms aloft bellow yeah. of here we go from the barrel-chested behemoth that is Ollie Reed yeah. with the body language, glassy eyes and visible smell of a man who's been going rasha for multiple days at this mm, point mm. that is so emblematic of the manner in which this film was made. Yeah. The really distorted, exploding the mic bellow here we go that then precedes Daltrey's entry into the track which is a mind-blowing moment. For it's one of his peak, peak performances, I think. It, which also leads me on to... Now, I read somewhere once online that some one person, one individual said, I think Tommy sounds unfinished. Uh, it sounds like it's uh, pre-production for an album, not the actual version of the album. Mm. And I said, that's pretty radical. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> and I swandered around... This is the going, original 69 album now. Original yeah. 69 album. And I swandered around for a few years going, Tommy's just a bunch of demos, like really, and not one of the most sublime achievements in recorded mm. music history. I thought that I was like 16 walking yeah, around going, yeah. it could have been done better. We've like, all had those moments. Had those moments. But I will contest that <laughs> there are some tracks on the Tommy soundtrack. For the 1975 movie. Yeah, that are better than the actual original Tommy album. Two that stick out in my mind are Sally Simpson and I'm Free. Far and away are far better. I'm in, t- I'm in total agreement. Yes. Cousin Kevin on the soundtrack of, of the film obliterates yeah. the version of Cousin Kevin. Yeah, yeah, on the, absolutely. But on the other side, I prefer Acid Queen on the album to Acid Queen on the film. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't really like um, t- yeah, Tina t- Turner's uh, sort of like vibratory delivery. I wasn't mad about that. I prefer yeah. two times and singing it. I prefer the beginning of Christmas on the original album version. Yeah. But I prefer the weird sounds on the film soundtrack version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's far too many extra extra read all about it's on the film soundtrack I'm not as mad at them one or two of them on the original album fine with them yeah. they're just used too much as like blatant exposition I do prefer that it's the sort of the beginning of the film is retcon to be about World War 2 not so much World War 1 the World War 1 idea was really silly it was weird I think the the, the concept originally Townsend says was that it was supposed to span longer than a normal lifespan and I think he's in Wolverine Tommy yeah, 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 totally. And I think, I think the album is supposed to finish in 1984 or mm. 2000 or some weird shit like that. Kit Lambert, the Who's manager, folks, uh, wrote like a script for a potential Tommy movie that was like around the time of the album. Headline of the script is it's either 1918 to 1984 or 1918 to like 2000 or 2001. Right, okay. But yeah, I spent a lot of time then walking around thinking, yeah, fucking Tommy could have been done better. Mm. Uh, despite everyone else on the planet disagreeing with me. Except that one man on the internet. Yeah. Like, and that was the thing I felt, it was the first time in my life where I fell foul. Second time, we won't mention the first time, I fell foul of a man on the internet 
Um, <laughs> oh god! And but since then as well, the Who were on their twenty nineteen tour at the moment, which we're going to go see them in Ireland as well. Yeah, hell yeah! But they've been slowly drip feeding and releasing uh, incredibly high definition clips. And I've been slowly drip feeding as well right? with every with every new video that's uploaded. <laughs> but it's, it's like some of the old videos and a lot of the clips from the Shepperton Studios gig the mm. Keith Moon's last gig mm. and the clip for One Could Fool Again in particular with the Townsend slow-mo knee jump at mm. the screen that's fantastic and that, that video is about nine minutes long mm. and I watched it eight times the day it came out <laughs> for a cumulative 72 minutes which is longer than the original Frankenstein film <laughs> you watched The Jungle Book but with only The Who in it <laughs> only, the, only The Who playing all the parts and only one song yeah, of the, uh, in the whole of the Jungle Book so Ollie, Ollie Reed's contribution to that track which isn't actually on if you listen to that on the soundtrack album it was released that's it's just Pete Townsend saying here we go Fuckers. that's only um, on, on the actual film mm. which is upsetting can I just go back there and say Ooby do I want to be like you oh, oh! <laughs> Ooby do when you're down who comes around? <laughs> Should have got the Who to play the vultures because the, the Beatles, Beatles didn't. turned it down. Yeah. Hey, Flips, what are we going to do? And the Roger Walter just fucking pummeled the fucking <laughs> doctor. Yeah. So, to anybody out there who uh, isn't hip to the jive, we're talking uh, the 1975 film version of the Who's Rock Opera, Tommy, you've been wasting your life. Go watch it as soon as possible. It is generally one of my favourite films. Mm. That... I think myself and yourself have went through like a week where we watched that Stardust and that to be the day on a, on a, on a terrifying loop. Yeah, two other brilliant uh, 70s rock and roll movies. Brilliant. Well, that was my <laughs> Sonic Seconds. Sonic Seconds! Hit with... Mm. Farce, uh, where I just detail the grounds for my immediate uh, disemployment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is where I just talk about uh, instances where I'm just uh, bad in done stores. Uh, not bad in a cool way, bad in an incapable way. Not, uh, yeah, not bad in a Michael Jackson way, bad in a Michael Jackson way. Bad in a bad is bad by Huey Lewis in the New Year. Yeah, yeah, written, yeah. Written by Dave Evans. Exactly. No. Yeah. Other way around. Yeah. Not bad to the bone. No. Bad like Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> On a happy note to start off with. Backwards disaster, no-no pizza woman came back. Oh, nice. And we made amends. She asked for a pizza, but I made oh. amends. I asked her if she wanted the usual, and she didn't laugh. And I apologised for that, and then apologised for the pizza as well. And she said, it's fine, I got over it. So, that's all good. Now, we criticise a lot of people and their silly actions on this podcast. Yeah. And I think it's only fair we subject ourselves to the same relentless scrutiny. Oh, God, yeah. Can't be above a reproach. No. I told someone this, and they said, Peter, they call me Peter, Peter... Don't put that in the podcast. And I said, obviously I have to now. <laughs> you know what what must be done. Yeah. So, and I haven't told you this either. I was at work, right? Okay. On the toilet. Okay. And I had a cold at the time. Okay. And I got some tissue and blew my nose. Okay. And I looked, obviously, because yeah. I had a cold and I was monitoring consistency, right. colour and viscosity. <laughs> okay. And all of which varied wildly in this particular yield. Yeah. And then I wasn't thinking... And finished my movement, got up, oh, don't, and then no. wiped with the tissue that I had in my hand. <laughs> Evan, uh, I rubbed snot into my bum. <laughs> Ross, Ross, look at me. I rubbed phlegm into my arse. <laughs> Listeners, listen to me. I violated myself. Please, don't put this in the podcast. <laughs> don't put this in the podcast. For uh, my life. There was two liquids met that should never have met. Yeah, yeah. Two ends of the spectrum. Two ends of the spectrum. Too. It's like polar bears and penguins meeting. It is, it is. <laughs> In the north and south poles of your body. Oh. That's like a who lyric. Yeah. <laughs> also at work now, they've changed the uniform for the fish counter. Normally I wear a, a white frock and like a, a black and checkered apron. Two-tone style. Two-tone, pretty much two-tone, yeah. Normally the fish and the hot counter would wear the same stuff. Now the fish counter you have to wear a black apron and a totally black frock. Uh, because I think Dunn's research shows that customers want to buy fish from people who look like Cobra Kai students from The Karate Kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like Gary Newman. So now, anytime you go down, because myself and who works in the fish counter, woman called Margaret, we go over and back from the fish counter and the hot bar all the time because mm. there's not enough staff on. You have to keep switching in and out of the black and the other apron and all that, right? Oh, so sake. you just spend all day going over and back, changing between black and your normal clothes. Much like in uh, Spider-Man 3. <laughs> <laughs> that concludes this disgusting, disgusting entry in the work farce legacy. I'm still scarred. You're scarred of it, are you? <laughs> you are my number one. A guy. This is second best. Second best. Forget the rest. It's the second best.
in there. <laughs> that Jack was... Nicholson in Batman. Oh, <laughs> before we go on, I you sent in the photo of Victorian Batman. I did, yeah. And I sent in you desire to go apoplectic. <laughs> pray thee, let's go apoplectic together. And you didn't even respond. To I it. didn't want to be like crying, laughing face. You do that anyway. I, I want, know, but that's when I. But I feel bad when I do it. You're a normie bitch for emojis. I you am. need to stop. I am. I, I've never emoged. I feel like I, I, want to I say, feel I want like to a say, loser when I do it. I wanted to say where were the other drugs going in Victorian speak, yeah. but, uh, but I, I could not think. And then too much time had passed. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. By the time I think of the right thing to say or the funny thing to say, that's going to make me seem like an awesome rad dude. The moment's long gone. But just to ex- explain for anyone at home as well that noise I made. That's a uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker in the nineteen eighty nine Batman movie. Hot take: still the best Batman film that we've had so far. Um, I don't know how to take it all I think it's generally accept- I accept that as like the best, I think it's the best but in, in, in the face of uh, The Dark Knight in the face of Bale and ah, Ledger and all that sort of stuff people have such a The Dark Knight Mafia people. yeah but in, in the face of all you Nolan dick lickers <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to say Batman 89 is still the best Batman movie that's been released to date hold the fucking phone did you get a second Pearson do you not know that do you've double pierced one of them though yeah that one there I didn't know they were double pierced oh yeah I've had two in that for like uh, Pete you're out of the hoop Oh, for like two months. I have never looked at the side of your face. <laughs> barely ever. No, because you're all, but like I know something I noticed as well is you're always on my right. Only in this situation. With the song by Willie Nelson. <laughs> you're always on my right. Hey. You know I didn't notice about that the second year at all. There you yeah, go. yeah, yeah. Uh, brilliant. This is so yeah. You introduced second best already, didn't you? I did. This is second best where we discuss what we think are the second best lyrics in songs. Uh, never gonna beat. Working for the FBI by the Hollies. But that's a drink that suggests we can try. Uh, my one is uh, I I was doing some research and it took me a long, 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 long time to find the second line. They're impossible to find. They are hard to find. Mm, it's a different um, segment. I shouldn't have put it in. <laughs> <laughs> but I found one that's not particularly, you know, um, witty or or clever mm. or in any way. But um, Mystery Dance by Elvis Costello. Second line is he jumped out the window because he couldn't sit still. That's brilliant. I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That's no, a really, get, that's a really good one. I think it's like when you brought up. We were talking about Fenton's Wayne as well. That he was killed by a cellular phone explosion. It's like in the second line of the song, Costello has already defenestrated someone. Yes, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, someone's already been hurled from a height. Exactly. Uh, my second best uh, comes from Beck. Oh, very and nice. it's a song called Sex Laws. Ah. And the line is Midnight hags in the mausoleum Where the pixelated doctors moan <laughs> That's just a really impressive collection Of harsh That's consonants That's a brilliant line yeah. I, I'm surprised you haven't brought them up yet Very Roy Wood as well Yeah, that, that, yeah, could, yeah. that could be on Wizard yeah. Brew Oh god yeah Wizard yeah. Brew Yeah Wizard Brew Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ Careful there Pete Yeah, yeah. Want to, I'll get <laughs> fucking assassinated in the forums <laughs> um, But yeah I thought it was a great line Again I'm always very impressed With Beck's syllable counting songs as well. He does manage yeah. to fit a load in Really really well yeah. It does have an absolutely Clatty banjo break in the middle Which makes me love the track Even more mm. Jack Black's in the videos Which is mm. great Now Moving on from that That was just That's just a bit of a red herring I've been all consumed recently <laughs> Recently <laughs> been all consumed recently By a band called The Ruby News The Ruby Nose Or The Ruby News I don't know what <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how it's actually pronounced <laughs> But they're famous for I think we're alone now and I want to be your boyfriend. Yes, Avril Lavigne's looking very scared at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's squeaky bum time for yeah. Lavigne. So did they write I think we're alone now? No, Tommy James did. We've covered. This. Oh, sorry, sorry, that was really silly of me. Sorry, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but they also have a track called "Driving Music," and there's a line in that song that says, "We don't have to touch cruise control because we've got it set to rock and roll." Oh my wow. god! So, is that uh, the second line? No, it's not the second line. Oh. That's why I wanted it to be, but what was? That's why I wanted to bring it up when we're talking about lyrics. I did. I started. I did a bit of research, right? And the band are from Berkeley, California. Uh-huh. The song came out in seventy nine. Uh-huh. So I gave myself a sort of catchment area to allow for writing and, pr- and recording of the track. A catchment area for about two years, so right. seventy six to seventy eight. Uh, and I researched the best selling cars in Berkeley at that time, which was usually <laughs> about forty five cars, right? I then was able to, I found that the band's age in that time was about 21 to 23. So I was able to then further refine the list to be the best selling cars on, sold to people under the age of 25. Nice. Which left me with six cars. Five cars. The Subaru Brat, the Chevrolet Impala, mm-hmm. the Chevrolet Caprice, the Pontiac Trans Am and the Oldsmobile Cutlass. Mm. Right? Uh, I then was able to, I read, I read about what the record advance was, how much money they got and the fact that they, I read that they still had part-time jobs as well. So using that, I was able to work out the tax exemptions in American state law at that time that they were able to achieve and what the basic part-time wage was, and was able to figure out 
what car they could afford, what mm. car one person, one Reboot New could, infor- could afford at that point in time. Yeah. And I was left with the Oldsmobile Cutlass. Now, I managed to find a manual for that model of Oldsmobile Cutlass. Right. And I went to the cruise control section, and rock and roll is not a setting on it <laughs> at all. What are we meant to believe? Uh, yeah, what are they trying to... It's a metaphor! Oh! Oh, no. Oh. I think he's just talking out of his arse. Jesus <laughs> it took me 45 minutes. Uh, That's insane. They thought they were safe when they wrote that line. Couldn't have been more wrong. Little, no little me was going to little rumble them. Yeah. Their ignorance was blissful, but... Long lived as well. It was yeah. 40 years ago. <laughs> 40 years ago today, the Rubinos tried to pass off some bullshit about cruise control being cool. It's not... Fair lady though. You're up, Ev. Oh, I'm up. Uh, so my second best is going to blow the whole town, this whole operation fucking sky high. Uh, it's a nice little invert on the concept. We all know um, that this, this segment originated from the second line in The Holly's Long Cool Woman uh, in the black dress being uh, a kick-ass second line work with the FBI. And um, that spurred on this whole conversation about second lines and here we are today. But uh, I've decided for my second best line to be from uh, the day Curly Billy shot down Crazy Sam McGee. I knew this day was going to come. If... Yeah, but did you think it was going to come this soon? No. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the Hollies sort of weird sequel to Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress where they tried to, they just they just followed up the style. It sounds really, really similar and it's in that same kind of roots rock and Americana kind of way. The least Manchester sounding sound. The least made. Manchester sounding thing, five Manx. No, at this point, four Manx and a, and a Liverpoolian uh, had ever made. It's uh, a rockin', rockin' ass track uh, about cowboys, basically, it seems. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I, I gather. And uh, so the first line, I think, is big, tall man standing in the street. But the second line is gun hanging by his side. Yeah. Simple as. Yeah. Simple as. I'm just going to put that in there because it's a nice little uh, weird... Um, link to the whole origin of this and it's pretty damn cool if you're writing a song where that's the second line you're a pretty cool man and we all know that 70s bare-chested Alan Clark was a very cool man we all have the hot take that it's a better song than All Cool Woman oh yeah, I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. better chorus yeah. better chorus yeah. better crack yeah. Um, yeah definitely no Graham Nash presence on it either <laughs> which is great give us another Joker impression and finish off the segment you are my number one. Oh no do, 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 do a different one. Oh fuck and where it's the Batman. He's at home washing his tights. <laughs> say this is second best. This is second best. That was say that was second best. That was second best. We move on from our stupid pop culture nonsense mm. and uh, decide to talk about Doctor Who. Mm. Doctor when, Doctor where, Doctor what, Doctor why. segment of the podcast called Dr. When, Dr. Where, Dr. What, Dr. Why, where uh, Evan uh, details in detail, in extensive detail, he details to us in detail why he likes this episode of Dr. Who. Yeah, going to make my usual disclaimer, uh, I want no part in any sort of fandom association with uh, post-2005 Dr. Who. I'm not talking about that show. That can go away. This is the classic series, 1963-1989. In my opinion, the second best show ever made after The Simpsons. You don't think Doctor Who's better than The Simpsons? No, The Simpsons is the best TV show of all. But as well, The Simpsons has a... Simpsons and Doctor Who have the same thing, actually, that they were the best show ever for a long time and then then were bad for ages. (laughs) Are you a scientist? Because that sounded really, really (laughs) great. (laughs) So The Simpsons has been bad for a long time. In my view, the new series of Doctor Who and the old series, that part of me is dead now. But the classic series fan in me is still so fervently alive. Doctor Who... January 1981, broadcast in, not Doctor, set in. Doctor where? The the void between E-space and N-space. Nice, okay, cool. Been yeah. there. Yeah. Doctor what? Kind of, the Farrells, but also a, a crew of human slave drivers. Doctor why? To escape the void and pass through the charged vacuum embointment back into N-space. <laughs> embointment? Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Embointment is apparently a scientific word. Doctor Who. So Doctor Who, Doctor Who in this instance, the Doctor, I should say, is Tom Baker. Uh, Tom Baker at this point is January 1981. He had put in an unprecedented and record seven seasons in the role of the Doctor. Um, This is his seventh and last one. 
and he's really over this shit at this point he's so over it he went through the point of first three or four seasons being absolutely fantastic peerlessly good creating possibly the definitive portrayal of the role two or three seasons where his ego got rampantly out of control and he started thinking he was the show he started thinking he made the BBC and uh, acted like a lunatic basically and wouldn't just wouldn't play ball with anybody and then the last season he was so over it and so done that he just resigned himself to give him this kind of nice kind of I think a nice uh, kind of morose doom-laden performance because he knows his death is coming at the end of the season so there's a big motif running through that of like entropy and things falling apart and dying and stuff like that so part of this 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 story is uh, called Warrior's Gate and it's the third story in a trilogy of stories known as the E-Space Trilogy according to Doctor Who lore uh, this is end space, Earth and all this sort of this universe that end space, end space. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We we apparently occupy the universe known as end space. The nth. Yeah. yeah. So this apparently is end space, and so the Doctor at this point is traveling with his uh, companion Romana, who is another Time Lord, female Time Lord, uh, played by Tom Baker's real life wife at the time, and the the robot dog canine, uh, and they have. He's just a robot. That's true. Keep going. <laughs> the robot that looks like a dog, uh, called Canine, and they they have, through some series of events that is too detailed to go into now, accidentally passed through the charged vacuum embankment, uh, the C the, the CVE, which bridges it's 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 some sort of like kind of crack it's some sort of like crack or some sort of loop loophole in the space time continuum. You pass through it, they have broken through the walls of their universe and into another universe. They've mixed snot and poo. <clears throat> yeah, they've mixed snot and poo and called it E-Space. So E-Space is another universe altogether of planets and stuff like that. And that's where there's lots of kind of entropy and stuff like that going on, I think, throughout the course of the stories. Three, four-part stories are trapped in E-Space, going from planet to planet, having these adventures, but all the time trying to figure out how the fuck are we going to get back to N-Space. Because um, Romana has to get back to Gallifrey, to the Time Lords, and uh, the Black Guardian is also kind of a sinister presence he's like the force of all evil in, in space okay, okay. and he's trying to he's pursuing the doctor and stuff like that way in the background so warriors gate they in attempting to break through the walls back into end space the tardis has become stranded oh they've also picked up another companion at this point a, a teenage maths genius called adric from the planet alzarius who is universally considered the worst um and most hated Doctor Who companion the classic series ever had okay. uh, people <laughs> just stipulation. yeah yeah no yeah oh don't go he's no pretender to clara Fuck that. No, fuck Clara, fuck Rose. They're all twats. You didn't say Madonna. Oh, fuck Donna. No, I hate her. I really, really hate her so much. Yeah, uh, she's possibly the worst of them all. I think it's the worst Christmas special as hers as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fuck all those idiots. Back in the day, Adric was the worst that the series had to offer in a lot of people's opinions. Not quite. Maybe at the time, people hated him. I think people just thought he was a little fucking nerd and wanted him to go away. And um, he was he was very unpopular the actor's performance didn't help as well it was pretty unconvincing but um, he's travelling anyway with, with the Doctor in his last season they're trying to break through the walls of end space back into East space and they, their their travels through the time vortex are intercepted by by a, a member of a race called Farils called Birok and he appears in the TARDIS and they and he has some doom laden prophecy and they say they ask him who he is like it's not normal for somebody to just be able to materialise inside the TARDIS uh, and he's like all this weird he's like this kind of like lion he looks like a lion basically an anthropomorphic lion wearing like medieval clothes and he's in the TARDIS and they say what are you what are? and he says I'm a shadow of my past and of your future and disappears right. and they it turns out that in his, part of his interception in time because he's part of a race the Tharals uh, are time sensitive so they're able to manipulate events and stuff like that and they have become enslaved by uh, by human by kind of a ship of human sort of colonist slave drivers, uh, or humanoid anyway, uh, that are uh, travelling in this big freighter, this uh, spaceship that's a slave ship. They've enslaved loads of these Tyrell, like lion-type aliens, and they have them in imprisoned on the ship, but they're also using their time-sensitive powers to navigate the ship and pilot the ship. So they select a few that they're going to use, and they drain all the energy out of them by fucking using them to pilot the ship. But the ship has become stranded in a void between the two universes, so it's trapped in this, like as you would imagine, an eternity of nothing, just whiteness, uh, in between E and N space. And Barak has tried to break through the walls of that, intercepted the TARDIS. The TARDIS has now been dragged out of N E space 
into the void between E and N space. And so um, the doctor and his companion are trying to figure out what the fuck's going to go on. Uh, canines no help because the time winds have got in canines. Um, what the time winds? The time winds have Whoa, fried canines' uh, components. So he's fucked. Poor dog. Yeah, that dog's always getting shit. In the previous story, he got his head clobbered off uh, by uh, an alien, a uh, kind of a swamp creature's sort of... Uh, Club, uh, club weapon. National, the NSPC or uh, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Robot Animals. <laughs> <laughs> Should have intercepted in that. Yeah, so they're trapped in the void between the two universes. Uh, the Farrells are on board the ship. The humans, uh, the led by Captain Rorvik, is the name of the captain of the ship. Uh, they're trying to figure out what to do. They want to uh, escape into one of the universes. The man, the captain, has become kind of so crazed that he's willing to kill all the Farrells. He's willing to destroy this race of in- intelligence, time sensitive beings uh, to if, if he can fucking sap their energy to get through the void to do the thing uh, but um, the doctor upon leaving and exploring the void the only three things in the void are the TARDIS the stranded spaceship and the warrior's gate in question which is like a big arc like medieval like archway crumbling stone gateway that just sits there on its own with nothing around it got these two big foreboding gates Um it's been kind of like you know classic classic castle looking thing stranded out in the middle of this void Uh, and at one point the doctor passes through the gateway and uh, it leads you into another little kind of weird like pocket universe that um, features these kind of mad like these ornate gardens that are like in this weird kind of stasis that they like look like a negative photo everything's like frozen in time it's like he's like in some weird like line drawn that he's like travelling through and he ends up in this weird medieval banquet hall uh, full of Gundam robots which are the kind of android slaves of the Farrells before they were in turn enslaved by the right, okay, slave yeah. people and they like had this big medieval banquet hall where they like you know they apparently would, could use their powers for like you know evil they, they destroyed races and planets and they like did all sorts of bad shit beforehand and then the Gundam robots rebelled and uh, went on a big fucking massacre and uh the Tharals that have, that are left uh, were enslaved and their ability to be used to drain the thing and so the Doctor uncovers all this passes through all these mirrors turns out the mirror is a gateway into e-space nice. um, uh, and once you pass through the mirror uh, if you're depending on what if like the Tharals like if you're like I think if you're injured or something like that you go through and you're like restored like in, in a Narnia type way yeah. um, or reverted back to the previous point or before you're injured to, in, in e-space exactly yeah or e-space yeah and um, so Basically, stuck in the void, E-space one side, N-space the other side, time sensors of Tharals trapped in the ship, fucking banquet hall full of Gundam robots that once they get activated go on a massacre and spree with their axes. Um, canine won't work. Adric's been annoying. <laughs> he still managed to make it back to Marrakesh before Ramadan. He fucking did. So the Doctor's like, how do I sort all this mess out and get back to N-space at the end of it? And he does. He, he does somehow. You couldn't write it. You couldn't write it. Yeah, genuinely couldn't. It uh, features a shot-for-shot uh, recreation of uh, the 1946 French adaptation of Beauty and the Beast by Jean Cocteau. Nice. Yeah. I've heard about Jean Cocteau before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's all I know about him. That was Doctor When, Doctor Where, Doctor What, Doctor Why. Poor Sid, he didn't die for this. Yes, this is Sid didn't die for this, where we bring up egregious things done by members of the music community uh, that Sid definitely didn't die for. Sid being Sid Vicious, not Sid from Ice Age. Yeah. Mitchell Musso. <laughs> Oliver Oaken from the Hannah Montana series. Yeah. Much like anyone else who was on Disney Channel, he was contractually obliged to attempt a singing career. Yes, he was. We all remember I Need a Kick Drum, a guitar now, a bass line, gonna show you how, how to rock, how to rock, how to dance now, all I need is a piano in my track now. Throw, throw your hands, hands, throw your hands, throw your hands, throw your hands up. Yeah. Hands up. Whoa. 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 That's what that's that's your Sid. That's not no, that's no, no, that's oh, not even a He released a song called Three Oars, a reduce, reuse, recycle <laughs> anthem for the planet. Yeah. Now, I would love to have been in the meeting mm. when the Disney bigwig said, "Look, 
the Kyoto Protocol is just not doing the business. <laughs> we need to bring out the big guns. Yeah. And then, like, I got a, 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 a whiskey-drenched voice from under a Stetson in the corner says, <laughs> Get Muso. Was Montana busy? Did, did Gomez say, fuck that noise? <laughs> was Tisdale on holiday? Was Remy Rodriguez even consulted? Who did they go around for? Hudgens and Efron and even Lucas Grabeel. Jason Earls. <laughs> Who else did they go around before they eventually landed on Musso? Corbin now, Blue. Corbin Blue. So, and it's, it's not the message of the song at all. You know, mm. I, when I'm finished with my pesto jars, I wash them out, take the stickers off, put them in the yellow bin under the sink. One day at a time, we can rebuild. <laughs> it's the absolute abomination of a song that it is. It's like, <laughs> guy, your brother was in Metro Station. Have some respect for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Sid didn't die for that. That Sid didn't die is going to be a massive bone of contention uh, with my sister. <laughs> she likes it. Loves. I'm on board. I'm she glad it happened. She, she, just... loves, she loves the cheese and the, the fun. I brought it up because I love the cheese. I want people to know about it, but I also yeah. want it to be enjoyed cheesily through the prism of we have to know this was bad. Yes. Oh, well, then, then, yeah, yeah. I think we're all on board with that. Uh, go for it. My, my, um, my Sid didn't die kind of lacks both cheese and fun. <laughs> it involves the Yardbirds, funnily enough. Uh, they're kind of basically, uh, the Yardbirds, absolutely pathetic. I shouldn't really be doing this because uh, Chris Dre from the Yardbirds, it was his birthday yesterday, so the last oh, thing he no. wants is for me ragging on him in a Sid Didn't Die for this because he was like, he was in the band at this point. Um, he was part of the, the final four piece. With Jimmy Page on with bass. Jimmy, Jimmy Page got to lead guitar at this point. At this point, okay. Right. Yeah. Jeff Chris, Beck, Chris was on bass. Chris has switched to bass. Paul Samuel Smith, the big legend that... Without him, none of us would be here. Uh, he had departed on bass. Too busy producing Cat Stevens. Exactly. The morning of his Snow career. Snow fallen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favourite Cat Stevens song, Merry Christmas. Jack Beck had brought in his mate, Jimmy Page, on bass, and then Jimmy switched to guitar, and you had what rock fans now would think the unthinkable, a band that features Jack Beck and Jimmy Page on dual lead guitars. Uh, that was really short-lived, disappointingly, because it could have been pretty cool, because uh, Jack Beck departed, leaving a four-piece... With Jimmy Page on lead guitar, a frontman Keith Ralph, Chris Dre on bass, Jim McCarthy on drums, four-piece paratrio lead singer with Jimmy Page. You think, right, we're into kind of proto-Zeppelin territory now. I know we have our, our, our hell views on Led Zeppelin, but it not, nevertheless had the potential to be some pretty explosive, psychedelic, hard blues rock. Instead, you get absolute garbage. <laughs> you, you, get, do. you get You do. You get absolute fucking dross you get trash they're a great band dross are great yeah, yeah. is it is it in Spider-Man 1 actually you go back to Spider-Man where uh, MJ's leaving the house and her dad's going you're trash you'll always be trash just like her he goes I'm going to school yeah that's me going to fucking the final four piece Yardbirds <laughs> with the final line of the Yardbirds you might have had some good gigs I know you had some good gigs this is, this is like they're North American like where the big yeah. they've ever been yeah inventing, we're inventing garage bands in a kind of a weird way they were trading on former glories there and the absolute giddy heights that they had achieved in their earlier time Jeff Beck line pretty much principally um, but were releasing absolute trash like uh, Goodnight Sweet Josephine Ha ha said the clown. Said the clown. Ha ha said the fucking uh, clown. The majority of the Little Games album, including the title track. But yeah, for all the potential that could have had, and for the Arbirds being the absolute goats. Goats. The big, massive, innovative, innovative goats that they were in their early career to sink to such pathetic sellout, trashy lows. When you think that the first thing, that the literal first thing Jimmy Page did the next day after the Arbirds broke up was start Led Zeppelin, make first Led Zeppelin album, and how well done that is for yeah. what it is. The fact that the Airbirds' final year or so was so pathetic, as far as I'm concerned. Sid didn't, didn't die, die for that. that. And I found this one that also lacks cheese and fun, um, which is Doors singer Jim Morrison, known for being just a bit of a goon anyway. He, in 1969, took his lad out on stage yeah. and also tried to start a riot, which failed. Funny enough... <laughs> And I, I think that it was that's just depressing and disappointing. I'm gonna say yeah, that's 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 not very punk rock. I do find it funny that it failed to yeah. start a riot, especially a man of that exalted 
Um, exactly. Hero worship. And it got him arrested. I think, you know, the more that the legend of Jim Morrison is chipped away at, the better. Mm. Uh, I think the man was a, a twat. Sid didn't die for that. That was Sid didn't die for this. Kept the best crack till last crack. Oh. It's never mind the fuzz box. This episode is uh, never mind the fuzz box. So this is the segment of the show where uh, we have a fuzz box. Uh, one of us sings a riff into it, and the other lad's two mates have to figure out what song he's doing. <laughs> Pete's first up. <laughs> had a face of like I know so I was like I'm gonna give up. I yielded I yielded the floor well I did that but I also went oh Ev knows that too and I just naturally went oh we'll both say it also much to my horrendous shame I crouched again yeah yeah you did why do I crouch why must I crouch we all present you go Ross because we've not done that formation of people yet do yours now please Ross Batman the animated series. Uh, London Calling. London Calling. <laughs> <laughs> no fucking London Calling sounds really Batman-y now that you do it like I that. I was so convinced that was Batman was the animated your, your series. Yeah, I know what the series is. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the show. <laughs> I, honestly, I, when you said it though, yeah. I was going, what? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, up you go. Okay. Get the track. Uh, Valerie! Yes, it yes. Is. Jesus, I am so bad. Anybody who knows my headphones uh, <laughs> will know that riff. Never mind, Buzz Also, I forgot to mention in the in the recap earlier on that we found the very last uh, copy of issue number one of Cro Magnum from Dublin when I was dropping off the second round of issues to Tire Records, Kilo Vintage, and Raid Records. Uh, there was one left, mm. and so we put it up online and uh, said we'd post it to whoever sent us the best Spider-Man haiku, and we got over multiple responses, <laughs> over loads. Oh. And yeah, the winner was Rachel Griffiths over in Liverpool. So fair play to you, Rachel. Uh, a copy is winging its way to you now. We're actually going to write the letter just as soon as we finish this recording. Congrats to you. And that concludes episode 5 of Higher Fidelity. Uh, next month is the Christmas special. Uh, until then, uh, remember to be rooting. Be tooting. Always be shooting. But most importantly, be, be kind. kind.